You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. I rarely begin a sermon with a quote, um, no particular reason other than I just usually don't do it. Today is going to be an exception, and I'm going to point out this book because it's going to pertain to what we're going to get into today. In this book, Enjoy Your Prayer Life, really, really tiny, you can read this in about 20 minutes, but it's profound, I recommend it to you. In this book, Michael Reeves says this, in one sense, your prayer life is disgustingly revealing. (laughs) Well, that's something right there, disgustingly revealing. It does reveal who you really are. For all your talk and theory of faith, you can affirm the truth of prayer and know that God is good. Your prayer life reveals how much you really want communion with God and how much you really depend on Him. If you were to do like a spiritual assessment of your life right now, um, how would you rate your prayer life? Are you communing with God in prayer? Are you demonstrating your dependence on God through prayer? I know these are probing questions. I I get that. Um, These are probing questions not meant to heap condemnation on you if you find yourself yourself in a state of like prayer paralysis. No, these questions are intended to stir your affections for God and, and to move you into a direction where you want to commune with God through prayer. And we want to allow God's word, as we do every single week, to be the chief mechanism or or medium in which how our affections are stirred for God. And specifically, as pertains to today, once again, stirred to pray to God. The value of our relationship with God through prayer can kind of be explained in how we interact with one another, right? Uh, As a church, we spend time with one another, the more our, the more time, the more we spend time with one another, the more our affections grow for one another, right? Um, for example, let me kind of state it in the, in the negative, if you do not come to church for two months, you just kind of don't attend community groups, and you're just not connecting with, with people, what, what happens in your relationship, things kind of dip, your affections for somebody begin to dip. So spending time with God in prayer increases our affection for God and our dependence on God. So the early church, what we read today, understood the importance of prayer. They understood the importance of communing with God. As we we continue in our journey through the book of Acts, I want us to learn from the early church, from Acts 4, how they prayed. So that speaks to function, right? And I want to look at the content of their prayer. My, my hope and prayer, not to be redundant, are that this sermon and God's word will challenge you to pray when we, when we gather, like when we come here together. Pray when you're at home with the family, right? Pray when you're hanging out with your brothers or sisters in Christ. And yes, pray uh, at home when you're alone, whatever the context. Here's a quick reminder of how we arrived at Acts 4, verse 23. You might remember from last week, uh, Peter and John were arrested and put on trial for for the preaching of God's word. The religious bigwigs had thought 
that the matter regarding Jesus was settled when they murdered him by crucifixion. Little did they know that Jesus, the Son of God, rose from the dead, and then Peter and John could not help but tell others about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Acts 4, verse 20. The religious leaders found him in this kind of predicament. Everybody saw Peter and John heal the lame beggar. And everyone saw Peter preach in the temple. What happened was amazing. And so the religious leaders are like, we just we can't, we can't put him in jail. There's going to be a revolt against us. So what do they do? They threaten him one more time, and they let him go. Well, that's a quick, hopefully digestible summary of how we have gotten to verse 23. So after the lame beggar was healed, Acts 3, after the preaching by Peter, Acts 3, the persecution of the religious leaders at the first half of Acts 4, we now find Peter and John back with the church. And after they were interrogated and released, what do we see them doing? Praying. What a response from Peter and John and the entire church. After interrogation by, by their highest earthly authorities, the first thing they did was pray. Is there not a more appropriate response to persecution than to pray? John Calvin said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. I love that. It's simple, digestible, and true. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a 20th century pastor from London, he said, the ultimate test of our profession of faith, the ultimate test of our profession of faith, Christian, is your prayer life. And once again, Michael Reeves adds from this book, prayer is the primary way true faith expresses itself. This also means, he's giving you the other side of the coin here, this also means prayerlessness is practical atheism, demonstrating a lack of belief in God. So what we see today in Acts 4 is an exercise of faith in God from the early church. And we want our faith to be exercised by prayer. We need to learn to use the spiritual muscle of prayer every single day. So here are two broad Categories I'm going to kind of place on this prayer to help us think through this particular passage. First, I'm going to look at, and I already kind of mentioned this, we're going to look at how, how are they functioning as they gathered together in prayer. And then two, what's the content? What are they saying, right? As they were praying, what are they saying to God? I already stated they were praying in community. And we've already seen this in the book of Acts, right? Um, this community of believers, they, they prayed when they were considering who would take the place of Judas. That was Acts 1, right? Judas had betrayed Jesus with 30 pieces of silver, right? And then Jesus ascends into heaven, and then the 12 were now down to 11, and they wanted to bring the 11 back up to 12. And so what did they do? They prayed about it. Who's going to replace Judas? And it wasn't just the men praying, but the women were praying as well. The entire church was coming together corporately. And then again in Acts 2.42 says that everyone in the community devoted, we ran into that word a lot in Acts 2, devoted themselves to prayer. They threw themselves at it. 
And once again, we see God's word highlighting the importance of corporate prayer. The same emphasis on corporate prayer is in Acts 4 in today's passage. Take a look at the use of the plural pronoun in this passage. They lifted their voices together to God. And then at the end of the passage, and when they had prayed, so that's what they were doing in, in verse 24, they were lifting their voices to God. What were they doing as they were lifting their voices? They were praying, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to preach the Word of God with boldness. Now, I know I'm pointing out the obvious here, but the obvious is essential. In the last few weeks, the story of the lame beggar necessitated a focus on Peter and John, right? necessitated a focus. I honed in on what God was doing through Peter and John. But here we are reminded that Christianity is not a solo project. It's not for just so-called the most godly Christians in your church, right? They're the ones who will do those things. Christian mission is not for a select few. Christianity is a community endeavor. There is no such thing as a homeless Christian in the Bible. I'll add this to continue to make my point. I do not think it is biblical for an able-bodied Christian to sit on the couch Sunday in and Sunday out to watch someone preach on the TV and then call it church. I'm going to continue to advance my point from another angle. You know, I, I preach week in and week out here. Um, but what I bring to the table is vital to the degree that it is done within God's design. The church. Within the context of the local church. Sure, I can go preach somewhere else and teach somewhere else. But I'm always coming back to where God has gathered us together. Us God is calling us to be invested in the local church so that we can join with one another and lift up our voices, right? So that we can pray together. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit together. Now I'm going to take my thought another step further about the importance of biblical community. Because again, this is, how, this is shaping how we understand prayer in this particular passage. The most significant family in the New Testament is the spiritual family, the church. What I'm saying is that the New Testament spends a lot of time talking about how the local church cares for one another, how the local church worships with one another, how members in a local church give to the common cause with one another. And as it pertains to today, how the local church prays with one another. And I'm not dogging on families, right? That's important too. God makes the family unit really crystal clear in Scripture and the importance of that as well. But the most important family in the Scriptures, specifically in the New Testament, is the church family. Ironically, we live in a culture, and I hear this from Christians as well, where people are clamoring for community. You know, this loneliness is rapid right now, especially the proliferation of social media, right? But, and still people are clamoring for community, but people don't want to commit to community. 
This is reflected in, in the church. Living in community costs you something, but it's good because that's how God designed it. Remember this quote from several weeks back when we were in the end of Acts 2. Uh, Kent Hughes rightly describes the biblical community or fellowship. The word back there for the Greek is koinonia. He says this, fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It's not punching cookies. Excuse me. It does not take place simply because we're in the church hall. Fellowship comes through giving. True fellowship costs. He's not talking about money here. He's talking about your lives. You give yourself away. True fellowship costs. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. Do you want to know what the most precious moment at the barbecue was last weekend when we participated in that as a church? The most precious moment, hands down. This is where true koinonia was demonstrated. It wasn't just the eating of the wings and the brisket and the ribs, although that's great. If you want to throw wings, brisket, and ribs on anything, I'm in. I'm good. The most precious moment was when a few of us had the privilege to pray for a father and his son who had cystic fibrosis. That was the most precious moment. That is where you see the, the depths of relationships, the depths of the church. It's where we come together in faith and pray. I'm not, I'm not dim, dimis, uh, excuse me, dismissing the additional fellowship that took place. That's not what I'm saying at all. But when we gather together, regardless of the context, we want to be looking for opportunities to go deeper with God as we are called to do it together with one another. And so one of the ways we demonstrate we are invested with one another is by praying with one another, lifting up our voices with one another. So personal prayer time, right? That's important. That's biblical. The function of prayer highlighted though this morning is corporate prayer. Now that's kind of the function in which we're trying to understand this passage in Acts 4. The corporate aspect of our gathering specifically in prayer. Now let's look at the content of what they prayed. They prayed with their eyes looking upward to God and then their eyes looking outward to the mission field. The first words uttered out of their mouth, one word in the Greek, is to declare that God is sovereign. What do they say? Sovereign Lord. What a declaration that is. Sovereign Lord. It wasn't, I need, I want. Sovereign To declare that God is sovereign is to say that God has an unchangeable power, John Stott, which he executes over his creation. In the early church, the, I'm talking about Acts 4 here, the absolute sovereignty of God was believed by Christians with little question, right? Today, the sovereignty of God is questioned or dismissed all the time. It's questioned in the church because many do, want, do not want to believe their lives are governed by a greater authority. At least that's one reason. In the early church, the sovereignty of God was assumed. If you believed in the God of the Bible, you believed in a sovereign God. 
the early church, they would like look at their history, right? They read their Old Testament. They look at their history, and what do they see? The hand of the sovereign God at work in Israel, in God's people. No one tried to talk around the sovereignty of God in, in the first century. R.C. Sproul has said, and I found that found this helpful. They, he's talking about this particular passage and the Christians here in Acts 4, they never negotiated the sovereignty of God because Jesus revealed exactly who God is and the power of the Almighty against all the machinations of the people of the world. Therefore, the persecution of Peter and John, right? Their, their release and all that was going to happen to them in their future. All of that, which, which was martyrdom. All of that under God's sovereign hand. In this prayer, God's sovereignty is described in several ways. I put it up on the screen to help you see it. And then we're going to go through them one by one. God is sovereign over what he has made. That's one of the declarations. How is God sovereign? He's sovereign over everything he's made. They also declare God is sovereign over what has been spoken. What was spoken wasn't an accident, wasn't an oops. God was sovereign over that. And then God is sovereign over history. Let's take a closer look at these three areas of God's sovereignty and how they, these areas of God's sovereignty inform their prayer and can inform our prayer. Verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Verse 24 is stunning when you step back and think about it for a moment, right? Um, it's stunning because the God who created all things ex nihilo, ex nihilo is just the, the, the way of saying for Latin, out of nothing, God created from nothing. This God also listens to your requests. He listens to the requests of his children. One evening, uh, this last week, I was outside, it was dark, and where we live, there's no light pollution, right? And I just kind of sat there and looked up at the stars, and they're bright. I'm thinking to myself, the God who made the universe hears my prayer right now. The creator of the world is listening to my prayer. Let me ponder that for a moment. You know, do you pray like that? Do you pray with that reality in mind? Parents, do you pray with that reality in mind with your kids, right? Next time you look up at the stars, recall Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, him being Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him he holds all things together. So when you ponder Colossians 1, 16 and 17, you can also say with the psalmist, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me, hear my words, Psalm 17.6. The sovereign creator of the universe 
is not a distant, deistic God who made the world, and now he's somehow sitting back on his recliner with his feet up, wondering how all this is going to turn out. No. The sovereign God of the universe has always been at work and continues to be at work so that his glory would be displayed through the creation of another star and the creation of another local gospel-loving church. So we can inform our prayers by declaring God is sovereign over what he has created and he is sovereign over what he continues to uphold by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. So, that's the first aspect of God's sovereignty we see in this prayer. He's sovereign over what he has made. We also read, God is sovereign over what has been spoken. Again, we've already seen this in Acts. It's how the Old Testament doesn't just point to Jesus, but tells us about Jesus. I continue to make this distinction in Acts. There is a difference for me pointing something to you and say, hey, it's over there, and me telling you something right here in front of your face. Now, in prayer, we see it was because of God's sovereign hand that the Old Testament writers spoke about Jesus. Verse 25, the sovereign God who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. What a, what a remarkable admission. God spoke through the mouth of David in Psalm 2. God isn't just pointing to Jesus. He is speaking about Jesus in Psalm 2. Hear how the Bible informs their prayer here. And this is important for us as well because we can pray with the same focus on the scriptures. Right? And, and so they use the scriptures to inform their prayer, right? Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What is being said in Psalm 2, which is quoted here in Acts 4, is that God foretold about how the death of Jesus would not be caused by a particular group of people, but his death would be a conspiracy shared by all. I say it this way because Gentiles in the Greek here is accurately translated as nations. The people were set against God's anointed, and in God's sovereignty, his anointed was spoken about before the incarnation of God's anointed. The fulfillment of Psalm 2 is that Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the Jews, all of you and me participated in the murder of God's anointed. Again, and not for the last time, the Old Testament is about Jesus. What we see in Acts 4 is a model of how to pray with the Old Testament, with Christ as the center of the Old Testament. We can pray knowing that the God who spoke about Christ from Genesis to Revelation also listens to you. Here's one more point about how the early church acknowledged God's sovereignty in prayer. God is sovereign over history, verse 28. Um, sovereign Lord, it says, you do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. The uh, theological word here that theologians and seminarians behind a keyboard get all hot and bothered about is predestination. 
predestination in the Bible is to decree or predetermine. It is to set in place events that cannot be thwarted or changed. Predestination in the Bible is not having an end goal or outcome in mind, and then along the way someone changes God's mind, thus changing the end goal. It's not what's going on here. Biblical predestination is God working his sovereign will, which cannot be corrupted or altered. Throughout the New Testament, predestination is connected to a person's um, salvation. Here in Acts, predestination is connected to history, in particular, the historical event of the death of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once again, says it better than I ever could. The cross, an accident? The cross, a surprise? The cross, something that might not have happened and that need not have happened? The cross, merely something that God uses? cross was planned, foreordained, before the world was ever created. Before man was ever made, God had planned the death of Christ, his son. This is the explanation, and these first believers had seen it. The cross was not an oops. There was no alternative plan, and there was no plan B. The cross was always the path for God's people to be redeemed and restored. The only way for God's people to be saved was for the author of life, Acts 3.15, was for the author of life to be killed. God was sovereign over the death of his son. Now, we pause for a moment and consider what this means and how, again, how this can inform our prayer life. First, if God the Father predetermined for Jesus to die on a cross to redeem his elect people, what does this say about God's affection for you? What do these predetermined actions say about God's love for you, Christian? God, out of love, sent his one and only son to die on a cross so that you, Christian, can be forgiven and set free for God. detractors of predestination, there are many today, will say if God predetermined the death of his son, then isn't he like malevolent or malicious, right? How could he do that? How can a father do that to a son? However, when you see who God has redeemed through the death of his son, then we understand that God was always motivated out of love for his children, Further, Jesus willingly, out of love, submitted to the will of the Father and took the road that led him to the cross. And how does predestination inform our prayer life? When life goes sideways, you can appeal to God's sovereign predetermined plan that was manifested in Christ. You can lead yourself back to the gospel. God predestined the gospel, and if he has saved you, you can rejoice knowing that you can pray trusting God's sovereign and good hand is also on your life, no matter what befalls you. 
when life gets hard, when suffering is unavoidable. The sovereignty of God is a foundation and an ongoing declaration for your prayer life. You can pray with Romans 8, 28 in mind, right? We know that for those who love God, all things, no matter what's going on in your life, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. You can find comfort in God's sovereignty in passages like 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, this prayer is filled with precious theological truths about God. And it is health, it's a helpful way to frame your prayers, right? Because it serves as a confession of what we believe. Trust me when I say confessing the character of God in prayer especially his sovereignty, will comfort you when tragedy strikes. When affliction comes, and it will, in this world it will come. When you are faced with unexpected trials, confessing God's sovereignty will bring you peace. And before approaching your sovereign God in prayer with requests, before you even get into that moment, declare in prayer what you know to be true about God. It could be as simple as this. I was just thinking about how would I frame it. God, it'd be like this. God, you created the world. God, you have spoken to me through your word. God, you have predestined all things to work together for my good and for your glory. Now I come to you with these requests, dot, dot, dot. So that is some of the theological content of the prayer of the first century church. God is sovereign. We do read in our passage as well practical content of their prayer. We do read about what they requested from God. Here's verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They knew that their current circumstances were not a mistake. And yet they did appeal to God. They asked God to consider their threats, and they asked for boldness. They did not ask God to remove their enemies from their midst. That's not what they asked for. They did not ask God to bring persecution upon their enemies. Uh, they weren't praying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They asked God to consider their threats, meaning they prayed that God would see their plight, which he did and he does. And they asked God for boldness. Do you, I mean, do you see that? They asked God for boldness. They wanted God to empower them to be bold. Why? So they would go back to their persecutors to speak the word. Who prays like that? Who prays like that? 
they want to go to the people that killed Jesus to share with them about the power of Jesus by proclaiming his resurrection from the dead. Consider what happened to the apostles and the power of the Holy Spirit working in them. These same guys, not too long into their distant past, after Jesus was crucified, lived in fear of the Jews and locked themselves in an upper room. And then Pentecost happens. Now what do we see in them? They're praying for boldness to go back into the world. At first they were avoiding the world. Get me out of here. I'm going to die. And the Holy Spirit comes. He's working in them, moving in them. And they're like, nah, nope. We're going headlong into this thing to tell people about Jesus. If you were to attend a prayer meeting um, with Christians in a persecuted world, for example, you know, this is actually how they pray. They live, many of them, live in a country, in a context where people want to kill them. And what's their response? It isn't smite them, persecute them. No, it's give me boldness so I can go tell them about Jesus. That's how they're praying. We must learn from God's word and from our brothers and sisters serving in persecuted countries, frankly, about how to pray. We must, we must pray to share the gospel with people who we may perceive to be our enemies. We must pray to God to share the gospel with people we might be fearful of. Right? We must pray for boldness to take the good news of the gospel to our culture. And when we are wronged for standing up for what we believe, what do we do? We continue to pray. When we are persecuted or wrong, our first reaction should not be to complain. It should not be to complain. It's not to get on social media and, burn, and take your plight there. No, we go to God. We bring our plight to God and we pray. We pray and then ask for boldness to preach the word. I wish we could transport back to this moment in Acts 4. I wish we could go back so that we can see how desperate they were for God. How they sought God in prayer and how they zealously desired boldness. Boldness is not a word I would use right now to describe the American church. But it is exactly what this particular local church needs to become. Bold. We need Holy Spirit-empowered boldness. We need verse 31 to become a reality for Redemption Hill Church. And when they prayed, it says, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The church prayed for boldness and God answered their prayer and bold. And just as God filled David 
with the Spirit to speak about Jesus. Psalm 2, and it was quoted in verse 25. God gave these early Christians the same Spirit to speak about Jesus. Verse 31. And he will fill you with the same Spirit to speak about Jesus. If you will ask him. 